Calling all Swifties and champions of change, Like a Girl Media is rolling out the red carpet for you with our Thrive Like a Girl contest. We're all about celebrating powerful women leaders who inspire us to dream big and push boundaries. And who embodies that spirit more than Taylor Swift herself? Here's your chance to see her live in concert. We're giving away two tickets to Taylor Swift's show in London on Saturday, June 22nd. Imagine being part of the magic, all thanks to Like a Girl Media. Entering is easy. Subscribe, share, and show us which episodes inspired you the most. Visit our website or check our social media for all the details. Don't just dream it, be it. Thrive like a girl and make this summer unforgettable. Contest opens globally, voidware prohibited, must be 18 or older to enter, no purchase necessary. Subscribe and share with hashtag thrive like a girl and tag us at like a girl underscore media for entry. Unlimited entries means unlimited chances. Winner chosen at random after contest closes May 20th, 2024. We'll be notified via DM. Make sure your profiles are not private. Check full rules on our site. This is your shot to see Taylor Swift live. Don't miss it. Support for this episode is brought to you by Chirpy Bird Health IT Consulting. Their newly released book, MIPS Manual 2020, is available on Amazon now. This book is great for practice administrators and clinicians who need to keep up with the changing healthcare laws. Welcome to the Hit Like a Girl podcast, where with each episode, we hear from different women experts in the health IT industry. We like to hear about what makes them tick, how they overcome challenges, work they're proud of, advice they would give to other women in health IT, and much more. I'm Joy Rios. And I'm Robin Roberts. Today, we are talking with Katie Adamson, the Vice President of Health Partnerships and Policy at the YMCA. She's an experienced national leader in developing partnerships and driving health policy with a history of working with nonprofits, for-profits, federal government, and congressional arenas. We learned a lot from this conversation and think you will too. So let's take a listen. My name is Katie Adamson, and I am Vice President of Health Partnerships and Policy at the YMCA of the USA. I have been at the Y for 15 years, but I've been in the space for 30, so kind of (laughs) old. I am about prevention, and at the Y, we're about community health. And so a bit different from the conference, I think I'm a bit of an outlier in terms of that, but that's kind of exciting. So I started my career out working for some elected officials, and so the first one was Pat Schroeder from Colorado, and she helped start the Congressional Women's Caucus and Children's Caucus, and she was one of the first graduates of Harvard Law School. So she was a super big innovator in women's rights. And I also got to work for a member of parliament in Ireland. Wow. And when I was, yeah, when I was there, he brought the whole government down over access issues for HIV rights. Oh my goodness. So it was kind of neat to see the parliament go down because he felt like everyone should get access to HIV care and treatment. If you don't mind my asking, when was all? Was this like right out of college? It was right out of college. Now they're probably more progressive than the United States, but back then they weren't. That guy that I worked for, Barry Desmond, he introduced contraception into Ireland around the Pope. Wow. That kind of tells you he was a real neat guy. I was lucky to work for him. And then I came back and I went back to Pat Schroeder's office. I had been an intern for her and I said, I still want to 
work on the Hill. Can you help me find a job? And so Bernie Sanders had just been elected. So when I worked for him, nobody knew who he was. Now everybody knows who he is. And Bernie's known a lot more for his super, super liberal left issues, but he was a huge and continues to be a huge advocate for prevention Mm -hmm. and that the system is skewed and needs to be right-sized towards a bigger investment in prevention. So that really influenced me a lot. And for him, I worked on those issues primarily. And um, we introduced legislation to establish a national cancer registry in this country so that we, you know, we have more baseball statistics about guys in the World Series than we do about women who get breast cancer. Mm -hmm. And so the idea was if you could really kind of capture when people were diagnosed, how they were diagnosed, that public health could intervene and catch it earlier, do better screening, referral, things like that. So we were able to pass that legislation, helped him get reelected, and helped him work with Republicans, which he had to do in order to get reelected. So I was doing a lot of work at the time for him to increase funding for prevention. And so the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention said, you know, we're the only federal agency outside of Washington, and we don't have anyone to help us educate the Hill about what we do. Would you come work for us? So it took us about me about a year to get that job. But then I got to go down to the Centers for Disease Control and help them come up and educate members of Congress about what the problems were and how big of an issue diabetes and cancer and arthritis and all these issues were for the nation and how we needed to be doing more and building more programs and communities. And that was an incredible experience for me. I came back and I worked for some law firms as um, I was a, a nonprofit lobbyist, basically. So it was a law firm for profit, but I was a, I worked for 26 nonprofits, and I had to get all of them federal money. Wow. So that was pretty hard. That's a huge responsibility. Yeah, I was back in the earmark days, and those were really good earmarks. So I worked for Christopher and Dana Reeve when they were alive, Superman. Mm-hmm. And Dana's goal was that no one would ever have to make more than one phone call after a family member had become paralyzed. Because she was in a privileged position, she had all the access to anything you could need in in terms of getting help for Chris. It took her like 26 phone calls to get just a few things answered. And so we built this entire center to help people living with paralysis get access to care and information. Our son had an issue, and so I've actually reached out to the Christopher and Dana Reeves Foundation. And having left the hospital after a six-month stay with something that turned our lives upside down, they're just tremendous. Aren't they incredible? They really are. And ours was not an injurious spinal cord injury issue. It was non-injurious. It was central nervous system. But the people over there are just a pleasure to work with. I'm so glad to hear that because that was a long time ago. So I'm so glad they're still doing oh, great yes. things. Oh, yes. I was lucky enough to also work for Queen Nora of Jordan. Tell us more. She was one of our clients and she and her husband, when he was alive, did so much to get rid of landmines in Jordan. And she helped take over after Diana died. So she took over and ran the Landmine Survivor Network. And they'd won the Nobel Peace Prize with a group of others on trying to get landmines out of the ground. But they also started a Landmine Survivor Peer Support Network around the world. And so when they started this peer support network around the world, they helped landmine survivors get jobs and be able to survive as as a landmine survivor. A lot of people, if you lose a limb in another country, you're completely ostracized because you're not of value to your family anymore. So long story short, one of my clients was a YMCA when I was working at the law firm for just six months and I was about ready to get married and, you know, have a family and I needed to slow down because it was really busy work. 
So I came to the YMCA and I've been there for 15 years. And so when I came to the YMCA, it was a really good time because the Y was looking at trying to take the network of 2,700 Ys in the country and 10,000 communities that we reach and drive the ship in the direction of prevention and control of chronic disease. And we've done this a few times in our history before. During World War I and World War II, we won the Nobel Peace Prize for our work during wartime. A lot of people don't know that. but I we didn't were, know that. Yeah, we were on the ground helping prisoners of war. And sadly, we were giving them some cigarettes and some donuts, but back then that we didn't have the science. And, but that was part of what we did. But we did a lot of social support. The Y was also on the Japanese internment camps, providing health and well-being and recreation. So we really got a lot of history in this country for things we've done and collectively tried to respond to community crisis and needs. Later, when women were going back to work and we had latchkey kid problems, the Y became one of the leading providers of childcare. So the Y was looking at its, its makeup and saying, we have a challenge here. We are a health and well-being organization. We wake up every day thinking about spirit, mind, and body for all, and we're losing the war here. And if we're not part of the solution, we're part of the problem. So how do we get everybody moving in the same direction? So that was kind of when I got to be hired, and so it was a super fun time to start helping our Ys be connected to the innovators, and so we worked with uh, folks like the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, and we taught Ys how to plan, do, study, act, really how to evaluate your work, how to change the building so people felt welcome when they came in, so they didn't see this gym equipment mm -hmm. or get a tour of the Y, <laughs> but they saw coffee and people sitting down and talking and how we would hire staff that were motivational interviewers and they figured out what you needed and they didn't tell you what you needed. And we built environments so that when cancer survivors came in, they would have a place to put their prosthetics or a place to change and feel safe and secure in that environment. So we changed a lot about who we were and really trying to reach the people that needed us most. Not people that would come all the time and just swipe and work out. They still come because they love that mission that we're doing. We really changed to try to help people that don't come through our doors come through our doors. So that was super fun. We did that with IHI. We also worked with IDEO who oh, is, you know, yeah. I do. Mm -hmm. And we said, can you help us design programs that meet people where they are? We, you know, we don't know how to do that. We need to know when moms are single moms and they don't have no time in their life, what is the programming they're going to need so they can be with their kids and work out mm -hmm. or get some peace and quiet. And they said, well, you need to talk to moms. You don't need to talk to us. You need to go ask moms what they need and why they're not coming. And so we got to hear great stuff and we could design programs around that. We also started working with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, no surprise, and Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. And we built um, a Healthier Communities Initiative. And we did this in 250 communities in 20 states. We had funding to bring a dream team from the community. So the highest level policymaker, so you'd have the Secretary of Agriculture, Secretary of Health, you'd have the Chamber of Commerce, the mayor. You get them to a table and you'd say, how can more kids walk and bike to school? What do we have to do to change that? And how can we get better school meals? And how can we build corner stores that are healthier? How do we do all this so that where people, when people walk outside of their homes, it's a safe environment to walk and bike? How do we do these things? And so we made these changes. Actually, we documented them. And it was like almost 50,000 changes in these communities and estimated over 100 million lives were wow. impacted by these physical changes in the environment. So the other thing we started doing while we were doing the healthy communities work is we went to the National Institutes of Health and we, and the CDC, 
CDC and said, what are the programs that actually work? Where are the randomized controlled trials where people make lifestyle change and it sticks and it saves money? Because in prevention, and you guys probably know this, completely under-resourced, completely underappreciated, and we need to flip that on its head. And I like to tell this story, so hopefully the listeners can visualize it, because I like to visualize dollars because they're so big and most people don't understand it. And most of the people that do this work online, so this isn't my work, I've just tried to make it come together, but they do it because they want to you know, shrink the budget. But I want to tell people that our budget is a problem because we don't invest in prevention. So if you look at how much money we spend to treat disease, $3.7 trillion to treat disease, 90% of that is for chronic diseases. When you look at how much we spend to prevent it, it's about a billion. So a billion, a trillion, how do you figure that out? What is that? So let's take a $1,000 bill, or let's take a bunch of them and start stacking them on this table here and keep going. And just as we get above the Statue of Liberty, just above that, that's a billion dollars. Okay? So that's what we spend to prevent disease. Now let's take those same $1,000 bills and start stacking them and stacking them and stacking them. And when we reach the space station, 220 miles into outer space, that's $4 trillion. That's what we're spending on chronic disease. Okay, I have a question for you. Yeah. It's come up because we have had this conversation in several different formats with several different guests. And it's just something that we think about on our own of just how do you measure something that hasn't happened? which right. is the prevention conversation. Yeah, we can yes. do that. So talk to us about that because we talk about value-based care and the cost savings and the year-over-year -year improvement and policy and regulation around it and incentivizing people to do that. But is anyone quantifying the fact that someone has made lifestyle changes or been impacted positively by a program and not just his heart rate or risk of heart disease decreased or that he's not going to end up with an AMI, but he actually didn't, that he was basically on track to have a heart attack in the next six months and an intervention was made, the course changed, and it never happened. We got approached by some of the original academic institutions that did the diabetes prevention program. So well known now, but back then, not so well known. In 1996, the government made the biggest federal investment in a lifestyle health program, the Diabetes Prevention Program, NIH, National Institutes of Health. And they showed, when you put a drug up against a lifestyle health program, that the lifestyle health program could reduce the incidence of diabetes by 58%. And if the person was over 60 by 71%. Okay, so one in two seniors on Medicare has pre-diabetes. 71% mm -hmm. reduction in incidence through a lifestyle health program. The drug, however, had a 33% reduction in incidence. So the lifestyle arm beat it out by double. So right then in 1996, Tommy Thompson, the Secretary of Health and Human Services says, we have to scale this tomorrow. And nothing happened, <laughs> right? Nothing happened. There were no networks. There's no one doing it. No one focused. Everyone had the same questions. Where are the ROI? How are we going to prove this? So, and it was really expensive. It was one-on-one -on -one in a very ivory tower kind of setting. So these guys, 10 years later, came to the Y in Indianapolis. So it's Indiana University. And they said, could you guys do this cheaper? And since you guys are the Y and you're not-for-profit, you're not going to turn anyone away if they can't pay. You'll find a way to cover them. So we said, yeah, we'll try. So we did it. We, it wasn't one-on-one -on -one anymore. It was in a group setting. No frills. Just show up and we're going to counsel you on how to do things differently. And we got the same exact outcomes as the original trial for one-fifth of the cost of the trial. Wow. Yeah. And wow. so that was in Indy. And then CDC said, do that again. But don't do it with any help from the university. I want to see if you can do it on your own. So we did it in Louisville. Same outcomes, fifth of the cost. United Healthcare said, we want to start paying for the program. 
I said, that's great. We have two sites. So that's great. So two places will have access. So flash forward to today, we have 850 sites in 40 states. We've served over 70,000 folks. We're delivering the outcome, the weight loss, and we're delivering, people are showing up and they're getting their physical activity amounts. All of it's working. So we applied to be one of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation pilots. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Okay, we were one of a few nonprofits that got it, and it was certainly community-based nonprofits. And we did that with United Health. So they were kind of the backbone of the data. This is where you guys can get excited. We had real data on real Medicare lives. And we did that, and we did it over the course of three years. We had to get 7,500 seniors into the program in three years. Now, the original trial for DPP only had a little over 3,000. So we were having to get a ton of seniors in the room to do this. And we did it. It was really hard, but we did it. And we had the help from the American Medical Association. They were an incredible partner for referrals. We showed that we could deliver the outcomes and then some, because they did better than the original outcomes. And we showed we could save $2,650 per senior with real health data. So they went off their drugs and they didn't show up at the hospital. And those two were compared against previous times when they had. So we had real data and then the toughest nut to crack is the CMMI or Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services Actuary. Mm-hmm. Thumbs up. We're going to start paying for this in Medicare. Oh, wonderful. First ever community-based program ever in the Medicare system because really docs are who gets paid in Medicare. So they set us up as a high-risk supplier, which has not been easy. But we proved we could save the money. We also funded a separate actuarial study where Avalier Health, who's very known in the industry, looked at our data and said, you know, you don't want us to do this because we're not going to show a savings. There's no way. (laughs) You do not want to do this. And so AMA and the ADA and the Y paid for them to do it. And they came back and they're like, you're not going to believe this. We cut your outcomes in half. So you didn't do nearly as well as you really have done because we wanted to make this everybody's all in doing this program, not just the Y. So you have great outcomes, but that church down the street might not. So we cut your outcomes in half. You know, we made less people show up and all of this. And you still saved $1.3 billion over 10 years. Wow. Looking at Medicare data. And then we have another program, Enhanced Fitness, which is for people with arthritis and mobility impairment. It's a chair-based physical activity program. Some researchers have studied that with Medicare data to show it saves $945 a year. Again, in drugs, you know, hospitalizations, real medical care costs. So, and I can even just tell you an anecdote of one of the women that came through our program um, named Doris, and she was 24 hours a day on oxygen. She was all sorts of cholesterol medication, and she went through this program, and she got off of her oxygen, she got off of her walker, and off of her cholesterol medication. And I I don't think you have to be a rocket science to put numbers around those things. No. Well, even the intangibles, the quality of life and all the things that and will come. And fun. We were talking about this earlier. Like, you guys offer Zumba. My mother-in-law and mom love that. Like, they'll get moving. Ask them to go for a run. No way. But they put on a good music and ask them to dance, and they're shaking their... Well, I was just thinking, so I tell Joy almost every morning, I am in the greater Charlotte area. I go to Sally's YMCA. And so... You know, we talk about healthcare as maybe the three of us sitting here might know it. And then there's healthcare as a consumer knows it who may not know the difference between an EOB and a bill. And I know a little bit about what you're saying in the YMCA because I care to know. But I feel like as I sit here thinking about just going to do my cardio and weights every morning, that that's the why is 
I know it, not as what you're explaining to our listeners. And, you know, our daughter went to a daycare program there, our oldest who's now 14 when she was just a toddler. And we've taken advantage of some of the different programs. And you're right, when you walk in, ours is rather new. It's kind of modern. There's a Keurig in the front. There's people talking. I know the lady, Shawnee, who I went to her cycling class last week. Mary, I know about her eye that's bothering her, like the staff. They're just so engaging and welcoming. But I think you're opening my eyes to just a whole nother level of what the why is doing. And all the awesome healthcare stuff, the data, the analytics, the cost savings, and the outcomes, most importantly, for your members that are coming to back it up and bringing people into the fold of that community. And I think your point is so well taken. We have such a hard time telling our story for a couple reasons. One, we're the Young Men's Christian Association. We were started to get young men off the street during the Industrial Revolution so they wouldn't do anything like that happens in Sin City here in Las Vegas. And they would be fit and they'd read the Bible, right? So we're, we've really changed over the years. We're not young anymore. We serve all ages. Our fastest growing population is older adults. We're not men. We serve more women than we do men. We're not Christian. We have a Christian history, but we serve all races and faiths and everybody. We're opening and welcoming to all. And so we are an association though. And so you saw us rebrand and we became the Y because that's what everybody called us anyway. Right. <laughs> and so um, we had to rebrand, but we still have a hard time telling our story because I'm talking to you about health and we know that health is bigger than the clinic setting. And what I've talked about is some of our lifestyle health work, which is about 30% uh, responsible for healthcare outcomes. Clinical settings, only 20%. And then there's the social, emotional, and economic side of health, which is do you live in a safe house or home or apartment building? Do you, um, are you living where there's trauma? Are you, do your kids get exposed to substance abuse? Do they have mental health issues? Are they hungry? You know, these basic, are they, in the summertime, do they just sit at home and watch TV because you can't afford to send them to childcare uh, or camp? And so the Y has also been working on that 40%, which is Walmart approached us about five years ago and said, we have hungry kids in this country and we need your help. Can you help us respond to food insecurity? So we built 5,000 sites to serve kids food. And that was five years ago. So today we have 5,000 sites. We just reached our 100 millionth meal. Wait, so are these actually at the Y? Not or necessarily. Are they, they, yeah, they're, they're separate. They're at the Y. We show up at parks. They're in churches. Okay. Yeah, they're everywhere. And we're not the only ones doing this by any means. Parks and Recs, Boys and Girls Clubs, they're good partners in this work. But we reached 570,000 kids just last year with 22 million meals. And we weren't doing it five years ago, but that's the power of the network and the passion when the Y understands that there's a crisis of hunger in America among our kids. And how do we respond to that? So that's a health indicator because if those kids are hungry, they might be malnourished. They might be eating McDonald's because they can't afford fresh, affordable, available food in the community. It might not even be there, right? So they eat McDonald's, which has no nutritional value compared to maybe, well, it might have some and I don't want to. I think there was this news story that came around within the last month or two of a teenager, maybe a 10 or 11 year old who I think he passed away because his whole diet was Cheetos, like literally for his lifetime. Sorry, continue. There's hunger and then there's malnutrition and we really have to think about it as malnutrition, sort of the bigger issue of what are you putting in your body. And so we, that's been one of our responses, the why, because we're the largest provider of childcare and after school programming, we've used that 
that setting to try to close the achievement gap. We know in health, if you have a better health, out, I mean, education outcome, you're going to have better health outcomes. If you graduate from high school or you graduate from college, your numbers start to get up, go up, right? Mm-hmm. You're, you're health illiterate. And, yeah. you know, you're more of an advocate for your own health. So if we can close that achievement gap in our kids when they're little, when, you know, when they don't do anything all summer, they're falling behind. We want to catch them up and get them ahead. So these are the other things that we do in community that influences the health outcomes, and we need to integrate that. We need to help our clinicians be more successful by integrating that. Hey guys, sorry to interrupt, but we wanted to let you know about a way you can support Hit Like a Girl podcast directly. We've partnered with patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, as a way for us to connect with our listeners and fans in a direct way and ask them to support us so we can continue creating more great content like this episode you're listening to. Patreon.com is not so much of a one-time contribution, but more like a subscription to provide support to independent creators like us. Patrons who pledge even just $2 a month give us the stability we need to continue producing podcast episodes. In return for your patronage, we're offering virtual high fives, personalized thank you notes, and even shout outs on our episodes. When you become a patron of Hit Like a Girl podcast, you're supporting our channel directly so we won't be making podcast episodes for some viral audience or for ads. We're making them for you, our listeners. This allows us to focus on topics related to women, healthcare, and technology. With your support on Patreon.com, we're able to spend that time having meaningful conversations and doing more great work that can positively impact the lives of other women in healthcare and tech. So join us on Patreon.com and let's make something amazing together. So tell us about you and your role in this mission. It sounds like the why is in a multitude of facets of health, prevention, wellness. You just mentioned SDOH factors. What about you personally? Do people just bring you these projects? People are calling you and you're like, yep, I'll do that. Yep, we'll do that. What is this like for you? Do you run a team of people? How do you how do you deploy all these solutions? I'm in the policy arena, so I'm in Washington, and I'm trying to get them to make changes. So I was trying to help them get the Medicare Diabetes Prevention Program started. I was trying to help educate them about our success. I authored some legislation with Senator Franken when he was in the Senate and Senator Luger from Indy, the original site where we did the Diabetes Prevention Program, to establish CDC's Nationwide Diabetes Prevention Program, which recognizes any community provider doing diabetes prevention well so that payers can pay them. So it's like a seal of approval. Um, so the why did that so anyone could be a provider of service because the why alone is not enough. Right. 84 million people with prediabetes, even if we were terrifically successful, we could never serve 84 million people. We serve 21 million today, but we couldn't fit all those people in our facilities or reach all of them in their communities. We need others. And so that bill was establishing a new way for more people to be engaged in the healthcare system. So what I'm trying to do is change policy, change systems, so that we can change the trajectory of health in this country. I also advocate for more funding for chronic disease programs at the CDC and for programs like the Y to be able to participate in this work. Because again, like I said, prevention's on the periphery, but it shouldn't be. With value-based care, it should be front and center. It's the only way you're going to really save those costs. And we're trying to show it works. And we, you know, anyone in the prevention space has this huge hurdle to climb. I don't think the same standards have ever applied for treatment. But we know that, so we approach it from an outcome space. Don't pay us if we don't deliver the outcome. Okay, we'll prove to you we can do it. 
pay us if we do it. So we did that. And it really aligns the incentives and makes people take you seriously. And then we've had these incredible partnerships. So part of what I do is build partnerships with the American Medical Association and the American Diabetes Association and the American Academy of Pediatrics. We have a healthy weight in your child program, which is for children that are living with obesity and their parents. You cannot, or caregivers, you can't take them out of the equation. So they come twice a week, two hours each time, twice a week. They have to work out. They have to learn about nutrition. And we're seeing a reduction in BMI, and we're seeing a reduction in waist in the waist circumference. And we couldn't do it without the pediatricians because they're like, this is a trusted entity in our community, and they have this program. You should go there. It's not a covered service right now. And so where we... Some payers are starting to pay for it, but where they aren't, we fundraise if they can't afford. That's never going to be sustainable. The health system has to understand that if you're not going to have a child with obesity in your network and we helped you get there, that needs to be a paid-for service. Sure. Think of all the dollars that you're saving that can be put back into other evidence-based programs. So that's the kind of work I do. I build those partnerships. I try to move the policy, advocate for funding. One of the things we did, the USPSTF, the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force, part of the Affordable Care Act, said, if you can get an A or a B, let's think school, get an A or a B on screening, it's a covered service. So they didn't screen for prediabetes. They didn't think there was enough evidence, so we sent them the evidence. And we did it with a bunch of partners through a Diabetes Advocacy Alliance we, we work in, and they changed it. They changed it to a B. It's now a covered service. And they said, and people should go to this diabetes prevention programming. These kind of policy changes have to happen or prevention will never be paid for. So I'm experiencing having a professional crush right now. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell me what your major was? I was a political and social thought major at the University of Virginia. Okay. So it was a really interesting background. I did religion, literature, and philosophy as an undergraduate degree. And I had to write a big thesis. So I never went back to school. I kept saying I would, but I never had to. Yeah, so that's interesting. The combination of policy and philosophy together, that's very smart. I like it's been it. fun. Yeah. If I think about where you've landed now, though, in the intersection of all those things to where you are, I it sounds like it makes a lot of sense that it's all been woven together into what you're doing today. Yeah. No, I feel really blessed and lucky to have had that opportunity to just try a bunch of different degrees at one time and put it all together. So first you have to choose a weapon. As Joy says, it's a weapon of peace. So you can <laughs> snap your fingers. You can have a magic wand. You can have a unicorn. You can have a rabbit in a hat. And apparently a unicorn hat became a thing. Thing for my guest. <laughs> yeah. I think it was you. What is your weapon going to be? I kind of already talked a little bit about this. I probably should have slowed down, but I, I still feel like we need to put more dollars in prevention. So if we don't do that, we are going to continue to spend to the space station and back every single year on treating disease. And I'll tell you, when we did the diabetes prevention program and United Health approached us, their chief medical officer who was there says, we're going to be bankrupt, all health systems are going to be bankrupt, and the nation's going to be bankrupt if we don't curb the cost of diabetes. We won't be here. And are there any other chronic conditions you guys are focusing on, or is it specifically just a diabetes? No, so we have a cancer survivorship program. So if you've lived with, through, or beyond cancer, you can come to the Y for a physical activity program in a peer group setting to try to reduce inflammation, fatigue. There's cardiovascular functions that are affected after you've had that treatment. So we've implemented this program. It's probably our most loved program in the Y because we don't 
charge anyone for it because if you've gone through a cancer treatment, you've spent your money and we don't want to put any more burden on the family. And so that's one that should be paid for that. You know, there is nothing free in this world. So there's no cost to the patient, but there's a cost to delivering the program. It's probably our most rigorous program. We do a lot of training for staff in this program. We want our frontline staff when somebody walks in and they don't have hair to be welcoming and joyous and inclusive and not afraid or concerned or we want them to understand what it's like to talk to somebody and work with somebody who's lived through cancer. So we have to really help everybody at the Y. It's one where we change our whole facility's attitude towards the disease to be welcoming, caring, inclusive, and supportive. And so that one has been around as long as the Diabetes Prevention Program. And Dana Farber and Yale did a clinical trial, randomized clinical trial on that, and showed we did all that. Improved strength, improved uh, flexibility, reduced fatigue. Moms were going back to work. Moms were picking up their kids again. You know, dads could go out on the playground again. I mean, these stories, if you if you go online and say, live strong at the YMCA, and you watch a couple videos, you will be so happy and sad at the same time. It's just so <laughs> emotional. Most of our stories, we ask people to tell their own story, so they do their own video, tell my why story, and they're like professionally done because it's from the heart. Sure. So if you watch a couple of these stories and you hear about these folks that have been through the Live Strong program, it's so amazing. So that's an Another program. I talked a little bit about the childhood obesity program. We also have um, the arthritis and falls prevention program, Enhanced Fitness. That was Doris who got off her walker. And oh, gotcha. So that's Enhanced Fitness. That's the one that saves about $945 a year. We have a new program that we're testing with the National Institutes on Aging in 14 academic centers on physical activity for cognitively impaired individuals. So people that are just starting to go into Alzheimer's. And so what it shows us is that it restores the mental capacity because we know physical activity is a drug. Mm -hmm. We've just never prescribed it, right? As a nation, we haven't prescribed it, the power of it. We have about 400 Ys doing Parkinson's programs. People will walk into the Y bent over, completely bent over from their Parkinson's and they walk out standing up. And I am not kidding you. And that is because I think it acts like dopamine on the brain again. It's just, it's reviving them. Now they still have to come every day if they want to stand up straight and they're still taking their medications, but they're looking you eye to eye from now on. And think about the social emotional benefit of not being bent over. I mean, it's just such powerful stuff. And so there's so many more programs that we could lift up in the Y, but we've in the probably eight years that we've been scaling these, most of them are in about 40, 45 states. So we've really scaled them. They're not everywhere, but they're a lot of places. And bringing more on is a lot of work. So we're trying to really master the ones that are the biggest issues. So we know diabetes is 84 million Americans. Arthritis is 52 million Americans. Cancer survivorship, 15 million and growing. Arthritis, I said, Childhood obesity, huge. So these are the big ones. Hypertension, 80 million Americans. So we have um, a hypertension program, blood pressure self-monitoring. What happens when you're with a physician and they give you something to measure your hypertension? You don't know how to do it and they didn't teach you. Mm -hmm. And you go home and you don't do it and you don't track it and nothing changes. So we have a very simple heart health ambassador model where we sit down with you and we teach you how to use your heart model. How cool is that? And people go home and they start tracking and they're like, wow, every time my husband comes home and asks where dinner is, my 
blood my, pressure goes up. What's, what's that about? I think I need to talk to him about not stressing me out about dinner. That's a trigger sure, for me. Sure. So how can we help people see what the triggers are in their life just by virtually tracking? We also give them nutrition classes and we're talking about adding a physical activity component, but that one's been supported by them, the American Heart Association. They doubled the amount of money CDC gave us because they saw the possibility. 80 million Americans. So how do we make these simple changes in people's lives that can really transform their health outcomes? All right. So our question is actually in a magical world, what could you what would you do to fix anything? But you're already doing it. We're trying. Yeah. We're trying. We need more people to help, though. We can't do it alone. We have to have these partners. They've helped us along the way. We need more involved. What makes an ideal partner? I think an ideal partner is somebody that isn't in it, doesn't walk to the door and say, I'm going to compete with you. Mm-hmm. Comes to the door and says, how do we fix this together? How can we just hang that hat at the door and say, this is a problem bigger than both of us. We have got to work together if we're really going to solve this. Because if we compete, forget it. It's so a true collaboration. It's a true collaboration. Yeah. And so we even have health systems that are seeing our value, one in Blue Cross Blue Shield of North Carolina. And they have said, you know, you kind of got all the programs we want. I know diabetes is paid for, but how about we give you $140 a month per month for somebody who has multiple chronic diseases? And you kind of put them through these programs. You give them a health coach and a Y membership. $140 per month. But, you know, we heard last night on stage that they're seeing that some of the interventions are saving as much as $150 oh, a month. Oh, I believe it. Easy. That's not crazy. And so they're investing in that with a lot of research. And so it's a medical membership model. And when we start talking that way, we're talking the real deal. We're not talking about one program, one disease at a time, which is really hard for me from a policy perspective, because I have to have a partnership with the American Cancer Society and the Diabetes Association. We all have to hit the hill on all these different diseases. Most people have multiple chronic diseases. What about, I I mean, this is coming up for me. Can insurance cover a gym membership? They sure can. They do in some cases. There's, um, who was it that was just giving out all the Fitbits? Was that UHC or BCBS? Somebody was just giving out all the Fitbits. Yeah, fine, they want to collect the data, but what about actually, like, I'm going to pay your monthly fee to go to... They do, but I think what we would want is that we like to see ourselves as more than a gym. We would want to see that they're paying for something that's proving an outcome. Mm -hmm. And so let's make sure we're measuring why they're coming because I think a lot of wellness programs that have been paid for haven't proved their outcome. And that's hurt us. In the long run, that's hurt us. And so I think if you're talking about a condition that people really understand or have lived with or know somebody that has and they see a change in them, that's going to change also consumer behavior to go and show up. Up and bring a friend or send somebody. I mean, we have a lot of stories of personal referrals. We have a lot of physician referrals. But when you do something well, people start coming. And if we don't do it well, it sets us back two decades. And we can't afford that. So I would say, yeah, pay for the gym membership, but either show how that gym membership is having an outcome on that individual or you know, make sure you're addressing some of these other issues that they're living with. I would say we would want to see better outcomes if beyond the gym membership. Beyond the gym equipment, you guys really have a great many wraparound services for the people in the community as a result of these partnerships, all of these programs, all of this lobbying. What's next on your list to tackle? What are you passionate about? What would you like to see the next chapter of the YMCA become in the next five years? Well, it's interesting because, you know, we're in 120 countries, and a lot of people don't know that, but the Y serves 58 million people outside the U.S. Is it kind of like Starbucks, where if somebody works at a Starbucks in one state that they can transfer to another? Like, some people have traveled the world that way. It is now. I can go anywhere in Charlotte. They asked me if I wanted to go to other places, because, or I guess at one point we were really close to, like, the South 
South Carolina border and we do we have membership yeah if you're an employee of the Y and you know and it's an, and somebody's looking for an opportunity can they do that they can because we are a world service. We're a world network. And so they won't have a job when they show up. But what we would do is we would say, we would call up Taiwan's Y and we'd say, we have somebody here who's interested in coming over and working there for a while. What do you have? And we would try to connect them. They might even get to go like on a fellowship or sure. you know, just a detailed type of opportunity so that they can learn how that environment works. And we, we do a lot of exchange programs. We have a lot of sister city programs. So a lot of Ys have a sister city Y that they support and donate to. A lot of our wives give to the Sioux YMCA okay. in South Dakota, which is our native one of Native American Y that's left, and it needs a lot of support. So if any of the listeners can look up the Sioux YMCA online, that's just a that's an environment where kids show up to the YMCA and they don't have shoes. They wear the same clothes every day. They're bringing their their sibling with them that might be three months old. I mean, it's a really tough environment there, and there's so much we can do and give to support those communities. So we have that situation all over the world, though. If something happens in the Bahamas, if something happens in Puerto Rico, guess what? One of our Ys might get knocked down. The whole world, the whole Y movement raises money to rebuild those Ys. That's amazing. It's really fun. And, um, but I would say internationally, I think it's important. We had this, uh, to, back to your question is, where are we going? I think that was your question, is we had 5,000 youth from around the world that are part of the Y movement come to England. It was Y175, our 175th anniversary this year. So they all came and they're two top priorities. So I think this is important for all of us for mental health and climate change. Wonderful, that makes me so happy. Those are the two things they want the Ys to be working on. And so we don't have a deep footprint and mental health, but my boss was recently invited to the World Economic Forum. Are you guys familiar with that? Mm -hmm. I wasn't, so new to me, and I'm going to help him get prepped for that and go to some of their planning meetings, and I know they have some really cool peer-to-peer -peer yeah. mental health models and also telling your story models, which we love. It just makes me so happy to hear that climate change is on the agenda. I just feel that is something that is not being talked about nearly enough. I'm constantly telling Robin, I'm sure she's tired of hearing me say it. I'm never tired of hearing you say it. <laughs> Well, so one of the cool programs we have that I'll share with you that I helped build was I said, you know, I do health, but we have camping programs and I know the outdoors improves health. So how could we work with our camps and try to figure out something cool to do in the outdoors? So we went to the National Park Service and we built a partnership and they give um, 16 of our wise funding to get low income underserved kids their very first opportunity in the outdoors. And so we take them for a week at a date camp and teach them all about the outdoors, belly biology and all this cool stuff and then they get their first National Park Service experience. And I'm talking about kids that might live three to five miles from a beach who have never touched ocean water. I am serious. And they will say, I just put my toes in the ocean water. I knew it didn't know it was so close to my home. Never had the experience. Those are going to be the next kids that are the stewards of exactly. public lands mm -hmm. and conservation and recreation and health and we have to get them in and get them excited or we're not going to have a future. They have to be the ones driving climate change, but if they've never been exposed, how can they fall in love? 
right? Another one of our really important initiatives, which I haven't had a chance to talk about that I don't want to leave without saying, and it's been a big partnership with the American Academy of Pediatrics and the American Red Cross, is our Safety Around Water program. So the why is there to the America's swim instructors? We train about a million kids a year to swim, and what we started seeing was more and more drownings around certain racial and ethnic groups, and so we went to CDC and said, we need to figure this one out. So 60% of African-American kids and 48% of Hispanic kids can't swim. And so we're seeing these huge drowning rates. It's the leading cause of accidental death in this country right now, drowning for kids. And it's the second leading cause of all deaths, second only to congenital anomalies, which are pretty hard to fix. But drowning prevention's not hard. Right. So our wise basically about, okay, so many of our wise, at least 1,100, it's probably bigger, have gotten involved in safety on water. We actually teach kids how not to drown. So we teach them the first part of some instruction. So if you fall in the water, get to the bottom, push off the bottom, get to the side, yell for help, float on your back. And I'm going to tell you a story that I choke up every time I tell, but this dad um, was on a podcast I saw him or a, a YouTube video, and he was telling the story of his three-year-old daughter who had been in swim instructions at the Y, and they were crossing a bridge one day with his her big brother and her and her dad, and they were throwing sticks on one side of the bridge, and they were walking to the other side and seeing him come across, and when they were doing that back and forth, he heard a splash, Uh-oh. and his three-year-old fell over the bridge. It, it wasn't a high bridge, but it was a river below, and so it, it was really dangerous. And um, she was gone. And he went to the other side and she wasn't coming out the other side. And he went in and he's swimming underwater and he's trying to find her. And he comes up and he hears, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. And he went under the bridge and she was holding onto a rock and she was floating on her back. And she goes, Daddy, I'm floating on my back. The why taught me that. Oh my God. And he's crying. Of course. He's crying, telling the story and saying, The why saved my daughter's life. They taught her how to float on her back. You don't think that's such a huge deal, but it's life-saving. It's life-saving, and it's a lifetime of physical activity outside that you can or can't do because you're afraid of water. You can't get in a canoe. You can't, you know, you can't swim in a swimming pool. And if you're living in a hot town like Houston, which is one of our wise doing really innovative work, they go set up in housing complexes where there's no lifeguard, swim at your own risk. And, you know, a lot of kids don't have anywhere to go during the day. They might not have air conditioning in their apartments. Mom's not home. They go to the pool to get cool. And they try to show off and they don't know how to swim. So we're just trying to put up a shingle, come to us for free, learn how not to drown. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's critical. And I'm surprised it's not, I'm surprised we're not hearing more about it. It's such a crisis that we're losing so many kids every day to drowning. Wow. I didn't know that it, the stats were that high. So we're trying to change that. And so this year we got first ever funding at the CDC for a national drowning prevention program. So we're really excited about that. Congress still has to pass a budget. But okay. we hope they keep it in there because we think we can do a lot more good. I love the multiplicative and exponential effect of what you guys are doing, whether it's the stats on the kids that are drowning or knowing that you've impacted childhood obesity to a point where that child may never have, you know, chronic care issues as an adult because of just that great start that they got or getting things right the first time, you know, to eat well, make sure they have the nourishment they need in these things. Katie, this is such a big, complex space to be in. You guys are doing so much work. Tell our listeners, how do you keep up? How do we keep up with everything? What do we read? What do you read? They want to know what you're reading. I do less reading and more in-person engagement because if I can go to a coalition and learn about a regulation that's really challenging and there's somebody in that coalition that knows how to respond, we can respond as a group of 20 instead of a group of one. Yeah. So we try to go and bring what we know to the table with big groups of others so that we can respond to age 
HHS regulations in a way that will actually impact change and they might actually read it. So I do a lot of engagement on the phone, coffee, getting in the face of my friends and partners to say, what are we worrying about? What do we need to be doing? What bills are moving? How can we get up there? How can we bring some of our innovators up to the hill to show them the difference? So I think I'm more, I read fiction. It's my friend. It's not fun to be in Washington right now. Yeah. Nothing gets done. There's impeachment. There's will we have a shutdown. It's, there's not a lot happening. And so I read fiction to escape. But every day I go to work still fighting the fight, still meeting with friends. And I mean, I read Politico. I read The Hill. I stay on top of the basic things What's that are What's your moving. favorite fiction read? Oh, I just read Lilac Girls. I've been really into World War II books lately. <laughs> and I've read a bunch. I mean, if people haven't Red Nightingale by Kristen Hanna. It's the best book ever written, I swear. All of her books are fabulous, but that's a particularly good one. And I'm about to read Malachi, which is um, a book about a little girl who lives in a leper colony, which apparently is inspirational and happy, which I find hard to believe, but I can't wait to, wait to read it. Okay. So, okay. Yeah. We'll yeah. find out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And I think you guys do have time for me to tell you about a hero. Yes, you yes, think you do because I think you yeah. wanted me to talk about a hero. So I have a couple heroes. The heroes I think I have probably don't have great name recognition outside of certain circles, but they're amazing people. Like Rishi Manchanda. Do you know Rishi? I do not. Rishi is a doctor that is a clinical integrationist. And so he worked in the VA and he would go visit people in their homes and he would say, you know why you have headaches and asthma? You've got mold all over your housing complex and we're going to fix that. We're going to go advocate at the housing department and we're going to fix your house. And so he has started a company called Health Begins and they are teaching the why how to do health detailing, which is the pharmaceutical model of selling drugs, but we're selling prevention instead. So we're trying to go into the doctor's office, give them little pocket cards on how to refer to one of our programs, and talk to them about the power of referring to a program that's going to change a patient's life. So Rishi is fantastic. He is a great, if you haven't heard his TED talk, it's called Upstream Doctors. Definitely worth listening to. And he's doing really innovative work, I think, in the healthcare system and should be paid attention to. Another person that I'm so close to and as a personal friend is Tyler Norris. And Tyler Norris runs a well-being trust. You guys are smiling, so you know, I know. him. And um, Tyler is now embarking on both a mental health mission and also the well-being mission. And he's trying to tackle both chronic diseases and all the social determinants of health across all those different kind of partners, from housing to transportation, bringing them all together to try to move the needle on that. He was our head coach on all of our healthy communities work. We, we did everything fun. You know, we had coaches and in the why the the meetings are fun. You know, people have whistles and, you know, it's just, we work out and do Zumba breaks and stuff like that. So Tyler was always our head coach and is just somebody people should follow because he's always doing inspirational things. Wonderful. Well, Katie, if people want to work with you, if they want to follow you, if they want to get involved with the why, where would you point them? Well, you can follow me on Twitter or you can follow me on LinkedIn and um, yeah, check me out that way. All right. Yeah. So thanks so much for having me, you guys. No, thank you. Thank you for sharing so much about the why. Yeah, this has been great. I've learned a ton. Bye. And thank you for listening to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. If you want to know more about us or this guest, check out our website at hitlikeagirlpod.com. While you're at it, if you found value in this episode, we'd appreciate a ratings on iTunes or simply tell a friend. You can also connect with us on Twitter or Instagram at the handle hitlikeagirlpod. Thanks again. See you soon. Thank you to Chirpy Bird Health IT Consulting. You can find out more about them at www.chirpybirdinc.com.
www.thepowerofthenow.com.